Well, good morning. Back in 2004, between 2004 and 2010, there's a TV show on ABC called Lost. I was reading that as I was getting ready to come up, and I'm like, 2004, that means 20 years ago Lost came out. <sighs> Doesn't seem that long ago. Anyway, anybody watch Lost when it was out? Yeah. Some, some, good, good, good. Some that didn't, that's fine. Um, very bold that you say no, very loud, but that's all right. <laughs> But um, anybody here that may be too young uh, or may just didn't watch it at the time, I'll give you a short synopsis of it. Lost about a group of people who were on an airplane. They were on a flight from Australia to Los Angeles, and their plane crashes in the South Pacific. But it's on this island, weird island. Strange things happen on this island. There's this monster made of smoke. There's a polar bear on a southern Pacific island, which seems weird. And uh, one of the people who was on the plane, he was paralyzed at the time. And then when they crash landed, all of a sudden he can walk. Now, some of these, they actually answer well in this show. A lot of them, they don't. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it was a good first season, decent second season. A lot of mysteries, though, and, and some of them weren't great. But it was, it was kind of awesome because it was like when the Internet was first really catching steam. And so there were a lot of people who were discussing a lot of the, uh, they, you know, they get on after the, the episodes, they comment and chat the theories of what was really going on and everything. But each episode would follow one person, one character from the show. And then they would do flashbacks to show you what their life was like before they got on the, the airplane that crashed. And so in the third season, though, you know, there were a couple of people who you'd never seen before. And you never really built a connection with these people. But all of a sudden, they're showing up like they're a regular cast member or something. It's, it's weird because you spent two seasons. You've, in, you've, you've invested in these people. Well, some of us did. We invested in these people. Like, we like them. And I don't know. Like, these people just show up, and you're like, I don't like you. I don't know why. But their names were Paolo and Nikki. But at one point, they even got their own episode. And it was just weird. They got their own flashbacks. But turns out they were a couple of con artists who stole some diamonds worth $8 million. And then they, they were on the flight that crashed. They, the, the diamonds went somewhere and they lost them. So they're always going out on search parties so they can try and find the diamonds. But they don't trust each other really well. They start not to trust each other. And Paulo eventually finds the diamonds, doesn't tell Nikki about it. But she, she figures it out. And then she's, she's kind of mad at him, and she gets this spider that releases this venom when it bites you, and it paralyzes you for eight hours. And so she has the spider bite Paolo, and he starts to get paralyzed and everything. And then while he's starting to suffer from this spider bite, Nikki starts monologuing like a good villain. You know, and, and But then all of a sudden you see all these other little spiders coming out because they're being attracted by this spider. I don't know why. It's a TV show. It doesn't matter. But... <laughs> But then one crawls up on her leg, and she goes after it, but it bites her too. And so she is now starting to get paralyzed. So she runs. She buries the, the uh, diamonds, and then she runs to everybody else. She's trying to tell them that she's going to be paralyzed, but they think she's saying, Paolo lies. And so they go, like she passes out and falls over, and they think she's dead. And then they go find Paolo, and he's lying there, and they think he's dead. And so they've been burying a lot of people, so they're like, well, there's just two more people we got to bury. So then they find the diamonds, too, and they throw everybody in a grave, and then they bury them. 
they were alive, but they buried them. And I was like, what is this episode? Like, this is so weird. It, it, it really was the dumbest episode, but I kind of loved it because of that. I don't know. I don't know. Because it didn't do anything for the main story. It was just there. And I don't know. Today we're continuing on in the book of Acts. And we come to a story that is not unlike this story of Paolo and Nikki. Because today we're introduced to two new people in Scripture who, this is their only appearance, is in this chapter, in these 11 verses. And it's one of those stories where you're reading through it and you're like, what did I just read? Because it's very different if you know this story. Uh, let me set the scene. Last week we were looking at the prayer of the followers of Jesus after Peter and John had returned from being arrested and they were taken before the Sanhedrin. And they get back and they're praying that they would continue to be bold in witnessing for Jesus, even in the face of some pretty clear opposition that is starting to happen. And after this, we looked at another depiction of the unity within the church, where people are selling their possessions for others who are in need. They're laying that money down at the feet of the apostles. And, and some of these people sold possessions, or some of them sold property. And we're introduced to a man named Joseph, but who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And Barnabas sold a field that he owned, and he gave the money to the church. And now we're about to be introduced to another couple, a married couple, who also sell some property, and they give some money to the church. But unfortunately, that wasn't all that they did. And so we look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So this story, like last week we saw Barnabas, right? We read that passage for Barnabas, and this is going to be the antithesis of that passage. Luke was giving us two accounts of people who were selling their positions and, uh, possessions and giving the money to the apostles. And Barnabas, he's kind of the positive view of this. We read his story, and it's really, it's just kind of put out there, right? Like, here's what Barnabas did, here's what happened. Ananias and Sapphira, they're introduced, and their story is a little bit similar to Barnabas. They also sold a piece of property. They placed the money at the apostles' feet. There's a big difference, though, between the two, and that's here, verse 2, where it says, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. Now, the Greek word for kept back here, it's one word in Greek, but it has the meaning of, like, to Pilful, pilful, pilfer, or embezzle. I tried to put them both together. It didn't work. To pilfer or embezzle. Basically, like, there's a sense of skimming off the top and keeping that for yourself. And then Ananias comes and he brings the rest of the money and he puts it at the feet of the apostles for a donation. And with Barnabas, we didn't get to see what the apostles said after he gave them the money, right? They just, hey, money was given. But this time with Ananias, we do. And so we continue in verse 3, where it says, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? I am hmm. willing to bet Ananias was not expecting to hear something like that when he went that day. Peter starts asking Ananias a question. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept some of the money. There are a few things that we need to, to see as we read Peter's initial response. First thing is just, the, you know, he asked the question, well, how would Peter know about this? 
And as we read, it appeared that the only people who knew were Ananias and Sapphira, right? But Peter had to have some knowledge probably given to him by the Holy Spirit. And the second thing is that Peter says Satan has filled Ananias' heart. Now, the scholars that I read on this, they all agree that this wasn't something like demonic possession or anything like that because Ananias was still culpable for his actions. With demonic possession, what we see usually in Scripture, or all the time in Scripture, is that these people who get possessed, like, they have no control over their actions. It's, it's the demons who are controlling it. This is more like Satan influencing the situation, you know, doing his whole shtick of, did God really say? You know, did they really say that you had to give them all the money? You know, you should keep some back. Don't tell them. It'll be fine. And that brings us to the third thing. Even though Ananias lied to the apostles, that's not really the true problem. It was that in reality, he lied to the Holy Spirit. He lied to God. Which I'll say, never a good plan. <laughs> because he's God. He knows. He already knows. The question we come to then is, did Ananias even have to lie about this? Did he have to give them all the money? Turns out, no. Peter continues in verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The property was his. He owned it. And he could have done whatever he wanted with it. The money he got from the sale, that was his. He could have kept it. It belonged to him. Because the money itself wasn't the issue here. It was that he lied. Not just to human beings, but to God. Ananias put up like a false front. right? He put up a facade telling them that this was the whole amount that he sold the property for. Why? We're not really told. But it could be that they saw what Barnabas did. And they wanted to do that. You know, they wanted to feel important. That's a little bit of speculation, but all we know is apparently Satan filled his heart and he lied. And because of this, there were going to be some dire consequences. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Ananias dies, like right there on the spot. He just falls over and dies. Like, we're not given specific details as to how he dies. You know, some people think it was from shock, from guilt or remorse. Or could it have been the hand of God? I mean, probably. But it, it doesn't really say, it doesn't give specifics on that. It just says that he fell over and died. Um, but you think about that, like, you think about that as a judgment, that seems really harsh right? I mean, it really does. It's what makes this story kind of stand out. But it's not the only story of seemingly harsh judgment in the Bible. Way back in the book of Joshua, the Israelites are going into the promised land, and the first city that they conquer is Jericho. And I say they conquer, they didn't conquer it. God conquered it. All they did was walk around it seven times and then yell at it. And then the walls fell down. <laughs> uh, they didn't do anything. Like, God did that. But God gave them a very specific instruction after they did go in and defeat the people in the city. And that was that nothing was to be taken from it. All of it was to be given to God as an offering. All of it. But that didn't happen because there was this guy named Achan 
and he kept for himself some of the spoils. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that same word that was used by Luke for kept back, that's used for Achan as well. And Achan was found out, and he confessed when he was found out. And then he and his family and his livestock were all killed by stoning. And so, yeah, like, this seems very harsh. But one of the things we always have to remember is that we are not God. And we cannot see the heart of a person like he can. I don't know if that makes it any easier on us to figure out why it had to be that way. But like we said last week, God is not safe. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he will judge his people. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes in chapter 10, verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31, where it says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Ananias dies. And then Luke writes that great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Which, yeah, I think it would. Right? That makes sense. Then some young men come, they wrap up the body, they take him and bury him, probably in a tomb outside the city. It seems to be a very unceremonious kind of thing that happens. And the reason that people think that it was not a lot of ceremony with it is because his wife doesn't know what happened, because she comes in next in verse 7. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what happened. And Peter asked her, tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. So it's been three hours since the death of Ananias. Now Sapphira comes in to see the apostles. She doesn't have any idea what happened to her husband. Nobody told her, nobody warned her. None of that happened. And Peter comes with a question. It's different than when he asked what he asked Ananias. With Ananias, his question was basically more like, you know, how could you think you could get away with this? How has Satan made it so you thought that this would be okay? But with Sapphira, he's asking her, you know, is this actually the price that you paid for the land? Or you were paid for the land? And, you know, I read that and it's like she had the opportunity to tell the truth. Right? But she doesn't. She continues in the deception that she and her husband agreed to. She's like, yeah, that is the price. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but we're not told this, but man, I can just feel Peter's shoulders just like drop. You ever had that where you're, you're talking to somebody and you're, you're hoping that they're going to do the right thing, that they're going to admit that they're doing something wrong and then they don't, they just stick with it and, and you just get disappointed, you get deflated? And again, I'm, I'm reading into that, like into Scripture. It does not say that at all. But, you know, as a human, I just feel like that's what it would be like. It would deflate you. Because, especially because Peter knows what's coming. And in verse 9, he says, it says, Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. I cannot imagine that any of these were easy conversations for Peter to have. But it was something that he had to do. And like with Ananias, Peter asks her how she could conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord. 
Well, I mean, with Ananias, he, he asked, or he's talking about specifically about lying to God. But with Sapphira, it's, it's conspiring to test the spirit. And now she's told two things. First, her husband was dead. And then second, she's about to follow him. Verse 10. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's very similar to her husband, this scene, and Sapphira, she falls and dies at Peter's feet. Men come back in, carry her out, bury her with her husband. And again, there's the repeated phrase here, the great fear sees the church and everyone who heard about these events. It's actually the first time the word for church is used in the New Testament. God is not to be trifled with. And this couple tried to do that and found out what can happen. Everybody who heard about this is reminded that God is still God. He is sovereign, like we talked about last week. And it's just sad that this had to be the way that people were reminded of that. But sometimes you got to have a shocking thing to remind you. You know, there's a few things that as we look in this passage, it is a hard passage to read, I think. Because you're just like, doesn't God love them? Doesn't, it's like, yes. But you don't test God. A few things, though, specifically that we want to look at as we apply this passage to our lives. The first thing is to understand that the church, people in the church, not perfect, right? There's a story that somebody went to the famous 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He's, then they were looking for help to find a perfect group of God's people. And Spurgeon told him that if he found the group, he shouldn't join it, because if he did, it would no longer be perfect. <laughs> There's no such thing as a church full of perfect people. Like, if you're new here, visiting with us, and you think that's what you got when you came to Maple Grove, I'll tell you, we're not perfect. Because I know all of you. And y'all know me, too. <laughs> like, we even put a sign above that door over there on the outside coming in that says, no perfect people here. And I think we can take a little bit of solace that, you know, as we look at the early church, we see there weren't perfect people there either. Like, even when you look in the 12. I mean, really, that's what you get when you look throughout the whole of the Bible. Like, you see, it's, it, they're not perfect people. You see humanity for what it is. It's imperfect. But we also see the one person who is perfect in Jesus. Because he lived a life without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are, just like we are, and yet he never gave in to the temptations like we do. So yes, while the church is imperfect, we are continually trying to be transformed over time into becoming like Jesus, who was perfect. We're working together with each other. We're learning from each other. We're building each other up. That's the unity part of it. So the church isn't perfect. I think we can all agree on that, right? But we've got to understand that. We've got to know that. The second thing is that we see that hypocrisy and pride are two terrible sins we need to avoid. 
I mean, we need to avoid all sin, but these two in particular are incredibly dangerous. George MacDonald writes that half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Jesus called out hypocrisy in the religious leaders of his day. You know, the word means wearing a mask, playing an actor, being something that you're not. One commentator writes that hypocrisy is the deliberate deception, trying to make people think we're more spiritual than we really are. Warren Wearsby was a pastor up in Chicago. He tells a story about when he was pastoring his first church, and they were looking to build a new sanctuary. And they weren't a wealthy congregation, so they had to keep their plans kind of modest. And he writes at one point in the planning that he suggested to the architect that perhaps they could build like a simple edifice with a more elaborate facade at the front to make it look like an expensive church. And the architect replied, absolutely not. A church stands for truth and honesty. And any church I design will not have a facade. A building should tell the truth and not pretend to be what it isn't. And years later, Wearsby said he ran across this poem, which he called a sermon in and of itself. He said, they build the front just like St. Mark's or like Westminster Abbey. And then, as if to cheat the Lord, they make the back parts shabby. How often do we do that in our lives? Especially as Christians, like we put on that false front, we put up a facade. What are we covering up? We're covering up the fact that our Christian walk isn't as good as we portray it to be that we've got everything all put together, that we're walking closer to the Lord than we actually are. Maybe underneath that perfect Christian mask that we wear on Sundays, our lives are filled with hidden sin, stuff that we don't let anybody know that we've got going on. We keep acting like things are fine, deliberately deceiving those around us, sometimes those closest to us. Sometimes we're trying to deceive ourselves. One of the biggest causes of that is pride. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. When you're humble, you're far less likely to try to put up that facade to fool others. When your humility is, is that big. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. There's a danger in pride and the hypocrisy that it leads to, which Ananias and Sapphira found out. They were trying to look good, but it ultimately came to nothing. Everything they gave was already theirs to do with as they pleased. They just had to be up front and not lie about it. But because of the hypocrisy, it caught up with them. They might be able to fool a person some of the time, Right? not going to be able to fool God. And the consequences, as we've seen, can be disastrous. So, avoid hypocrisy, pride. Third application. When you give, give out of the joy and generosity of your heart. When you give, whether it's to a church, to a mission, another charity of some sort, you want to give because God has blessed you. And you want to turn it around and you want to bless others. That's not why Ananias and Sapphira gave. They seem to be more like seeking after status. Maybe they saw something in how Barnabas was treated after selling his property and giving. That's why they put up that facade of giving more than they actually could. 
people can still fall into this today. I've heard stories about people who give because they think it's going to increase their status within the church. It's one of the reasons, like, I don't know what anybody gives. Like, I have no clue. And I, I don't have access to that. I don't want access to that. There are churches I've heard of where the pastor knows who their top givers are so they can cater better to them. I'm like, eh. Eh. I've always been in the frame of mind, like, if you're giving whatever, how much you're giving, that's a good thing. Like, it doesn't matter because it's still giving to the church. It's important. It's generous. We're a generous church. We've talked about this a lot. Rick and I have always talked about that. Like, we're, we're a generous church, right? I mean, we're, we're debt-free. We moved over here in 2008, I think, and we paid off the, the debt of what we bought the property for, built that building, reworked this sanctuary 50 different times. Um, if Those of you who weren't here when we started, we had a kitchen over there. A kitchen. <laughs> The fireplaces out there was here. There were windows here. I know some of you are like, man, wish those windows were still there. Because <laughs> then that, that cardinal that would come up to the window. Some of you remember that cardinal. <laughs> Most annoying bird. <laughs> yeah. But we're debt free. We've been able to do all of this because you're a generous church. I mean, we, you guys support a budget that's more than $300,000 a year. And for our size of a church, that's kind of unbelievable, I think. But it's because you're very generous. And it's awesome. It's awesome. And I'm sorry if you're visiting today because you're hearing a sermon about money. <laughs> that just happens. But you give because God's blessed you. And you want to be a blessing to others. And you know what? There's no set amount that you have to give. You know, we're not in the Old Testament where the tithe was 10%. 10% is not a bad number to try and aim for, like 10% of your income. But, you know, if you go above that, if you go below that, it's okay. Because what you're doing is you're giving your first fruits. You're giving to God what's really already his. You're just giving it back. And you're supporting his work for his kingdom. All right, we'll get away from money. Last application. This one, though, is probably one of the, probably the most important of the four. You've got to deal decisively with your sin. And that's both for you personally, but also for the church. We've got to deal decisively with sin. For the church, we need to confront it. For Ananias and Sapphira, they were confronted in their lives. I don't think this is like when, you're stum when like you stumble, you slip up, and you repent, and you ask forgiveness, and you, you move forward. It, it, I think it's more when the sin has become a habitual thing. Because at that point, you're really thumbing your nose to God. And you're in essence saying, yeah, I don't really need you. Or, you know, thank you for the salvation, but I'm going to do whatever I want now. So for the church, we've got to deal decisively with that. We've got to put somebody through what we would call church discipline. But anytime we do church discipline, it is always, always, always in the hope that it will lead to repentance. That they would continue to or follow God closer again. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out what somebody should do when they know that somebody is in sin. I'm just going to read the section to you. It's uh, verses 15 through 17. 
If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over, which good thing. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So you're going by yourself. You know, you're pointing out their sin. If, they're, if they listen to you, awesome. That's what we're aiming for, right? If they don't, take somebody with you and try again. And again, you're hoping that they, they repent, they turn back. If they don't, then come to the church, the leadership of the church, the elders. And then we go and we try. And then if they still don't listen, then we kind of treat them like they're a non-believer. Because essentially that's what they're acting like. And that seems harsh, right? But what you do when you don't do that is you start to break that unity that you're building in the church. And again, there's no perfect people in the church. But this is dealing with that sin that has become a lifestyle more than just like a short-term mistake. Because you're trampling on the grace of God at that point. And that's not where we want to be, right? And again, the, I cannot repeat this enough, but the goal for church pl- discipline is always repentance so that they would turn away from that sin and turn back to the Lord. The church needs to deal decisively with sin, but so do you individually. You cannot let sin get a foothold in you. When you sin, don't wait for a confrontation. Like, repent, go to the Lord, ask his forgiveness, because he will give it to you. There may be consequences for your sin. It may happen, but the Lord is quick to forgive. And if we are confronted in sin, then we need to be like King David, who, when he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, he immediately repented, and he sought God's forgiveness. Because he recognized that when he sinned, he did so against God. Listen, it wasn't Ananias that Ananias and Sapphira were lying to the people. That wasn't their problem, right? It was that they were lying to God. They were sinning against God because that's what we do when we sin. We might hurt other people. We might have collateral damage. But ultimately, we are sinning against our Father in heaven. And we trample on the grace of Christ who went to a cross to die for your sin. And so we've got to deal decisively with sin. This is a weird story in the book of Acts. right? The church had been doing so well, even with persecution starting. And then this story, it's kind of a bleak reminder that sin is always crouching at the door, even in the early church. We've got to be on guard. We've got to continue to put on the armor of God every day for our protection. We cannot allow sin to have that foothold. Because once you do, that's one and then another and then another. And like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The danger is there. And we don't need to be devoured because 
We have God on our side. And as the Apostle Paul wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the truth we live in. We have been set free from sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why he went to the cross, so that we could be free. Your sin has been paid in full. You're free from it. And so fight to not go back to it. Deal decisively with your sin. Repent. Don't let it control your life. Leave that to God. Let him control your life. Allow him to lead you because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. Follow him. Follow Christ. Because Christ is who paid the debt for us on the cross. You know, we come to the point where we're at the end of the sermon, but we always have our communion at the end of the sermon because we want you to remember that sacrifice that he made. And, you know, in a month, we've got both our Good Friday service that will be coming up and our Easter service. And those are times, too, where we remember what happened on the cross. But we also rejoice because he didn't stay there. You know, three days later, he came back. Baby's happy about it, too. <laughs> and we should all rejoice because of that. And so we... You know, we'll have our Good Friday service, and that will be the time where we, we bring things down just a bit, just to kind of soak in it and remember what Christ did. But then on that Sunday, man, we're going to rejoice. We're so going to rejoice. And we're going to have two services. I'm just going to tell you everything now. We're, we're going to have two services, 830 and 10, and, you know, invite people. You know, invite people out. To, we're going to give you little invite cards to give to people. Um, but invite a person a week or something. We want to pack this place out to hear the gospel, to hear the good news that we are all you know, bought in to. All right, amen? amen. All right, let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, oh Lord, just thank you so much for just your many, many blessings that you've given us. But thank you for Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. That we don't have to trample on the grace of, of your son, on your grace, Lord. You've given us the way to live life without being like Ananias and Sapphira, without trying to put up a facade. We can be ourselves here we know that there's no perfect people here. But we know that, Lord, you are also helping to make us better each and every day. To help make us more like Jesus until we go home to see you, to be with you. We know we're not going to reach that level of perfection in on this side of heaven. But we know that we're going to constantly strive to get there. And so help us not to be like Ananias and Sapphira and, and try to put on that false front to let the hypocrisy, to let the pride get the best of us. But Lord, let us be humble and just follow you because you are king. You are God. And you are amazing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. 
as we come around the table to remember the sacrifice of your son through the elements of communion, through the bread and, and the juice representing his body broken, his, his blood spilled. We know that that cup was a cup of a new covenant as well. The covenant of Christ. Thank you for inviting us into it. Thank you for reaching out to us, drawing us to you. Thank you, Lord. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.